market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is certainly not going to be the US president by this time next week. I'm Scott Phillips, not President Scott Phillips, just normal Scott Phillips. Luckily, we have someone with a title. We also have Dr. Nirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? Very good, Matt. How are you? I'm, I'm excellent. Neither you nor I are going to be US president next week. I'm going to be president of podcast. You're president of podcast. I like it. Podcasting president. I love it. President of the podcast. That, that works. Okay, you can be podcast president. I'll, I'll bestow on you that title. Okay. We'll have the investiture later. We'll have a sword and, you know, we'll knight you and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. If I could have a chair, a so throne, of the podcast. A, a throne would be better. <laughs> See what we can do. Mate, we've got a massive podcast this week. Um, uh, look, so much going on and, and a lot of it macro at the moment. Massive wobble on markets overnight. We're recording this on Thursday, the 29th of October. Uh, we tend to record on Thursdays and we woke up this morning with some really ordinary news from the US. We'll talk about that. Inflation is up here in Australia. We may well have a new or returned US president by this time next week or not. Interest rates are on the agenda. Retail sale, oh, it's so much going on. Mate. A bit of corporate news, Coca-Cola, Amazon, Microsoft. So much happening. What do you say we just get into it? Let's do it. Beautiful. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, let's start as we do every week or most weeks on the macro. And there's quite a bit of macro going on. We didn't even have to try very hard. And there was kind of four big bullet points from this week alone. Let's start with the most recent one. Now, by the time this goes out Friday afternoon, goodness knows what happens. It has happened in two trading days on the ASX. But it seems reasonably likely to me that, as we recall this before, trade on Thursday, Australian market's not going to love the fact that Europe fell out of bed. In response to that, the Americans fell out of bed. Um, it's, it's, it's always, you know, the, the headlines always say, Mark's down because. And the because is always speculation from whoever they interview or whichever journalist makes it up. And largely we're a bit sceptical of that because A, a it doesn't really matter anyway, even if we do know why, because uh, short-term things are just short-term. But B, it's often not super clear. It seems pretty likely to me though, mate, this time around, two of the biggest contributors are COVID in Europe and a little bit in the US and the US presidential election. As I said, the US market, I think the Dow was off 3.5%, SP was off 3.5%, NASDAQ off a little bit more than that. European market's down by that. We will have some people come out today and say, oh, this was the, the correction the market was waiting for or it's good to have a pullback to consolidate or whatever, they, whatever jargon they come up with. Do you have a take on what's happening this week and why? Um, well, not really. Like, I mean, my... my uh, Going model right now is I pretty much ignore every COVID news <laughs> except for a news that's related to COVID uh, vaccination. Right. Uh, everything else I think is, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, to, in my mind, uh, all of the other things that are happening are, uh, you know, more of the same, a little mm -hmm. bit of the same, um, largely inconsequential mm -hmm. in, the, in the long run. Yep. And... You know, if anything, as I've as I've said, you know, I think policy decisions made now they mm -hmm. will have impact over the long term. Mm -hmm. And you know, if I had to bet on something, I would say that the gap would widen between you know um, players because okay. of policy decisions made now. Right, right. And and COVID specific or just general kind of economic where we're up. Well, policy it's a, wise? you know, I, I think that okay. So this is an interesting point. I mean. Broadly speaking, mm. any big economic event uh, typically creates opportunities mm. also, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it creates hardships and opportunities, right? So, and what I like to say is that, mm. you know, we mm. had GFC. The GFC was the birth of, you know, things like Uber, Airbnb, mm -hmm. Facebook, and mm -hmm. so many other things, right? It also coincided with the time, you know, when the mobile basically, you know, took off, right? Yeah. Um, so, a lot of things came together. This could exactly be the same thing, uh, 
it's just that we wouldn't know now. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. We would know in the future. Uh, but I think politi- policy decisions made now will have an impact and it will show in, say, 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. As an in- investor, you can be optimistic and you can bet on, as I like to say, on ingenuity, right? You can bet on things that are actually innovating, things that are actually inventing the future, mm-hmm. and you're likely to do well. That's got nothing to do with GDPs and things like that, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it is just, you know, on a, on a specific company-specific basis, on a technology-specific basis. I think there's humongous opportunities that are, you know, mm-hmm. and, and things that have been created. And, and you know, lockdowns or no lockdowns, you know, some of those have negative impacts. Some of them have positive impact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't mind it because I think everything that we're doing right now, Basically means you're gonna have low rates, which is really favorable to the pest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it helps the one on the on the drip feed survive longer. But <laughs> it just is, you know, the drip feed is basically those investing in drip feeds are basically gonna have a long term pain. That just pain is not ending quick enough, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so suboptimal returns over like ten year period. But again, yeah. now on a ten year period, those that don't need the drip feed are gonna get access to cheap money, and capital really works well mm-hmm. for those who know how to use that capital, right? So. I, I, I think that's w- where this is headed, and, and this is very interesting. We'll get another mm. answer in ten years' mm. time. Exactly, that's a, that's always the case, right? We're always doing our best to speculate wildly and hopefully get it roughly right. When it comes to, um, I guess the the broad, just take you back kind of a little bit to the the where we're at. Do, do you see you know, investors listening to us now with shares probably will by now have had at least one tough day on the market of the next two? Um, you know, are we are we overestimating the future, underestimating the future? Does it matter? How, how would you suggest our listeners think about the kind of current volatility we're, we're having right now? Yeah, so, so my take is for one of the important things is to realize that the market doesn't have to be your return. I mean, the market is your return if you're investing in ETFs that follow a market. Yeah. Also, when we say market, there are hundreds of different markets, right? Yeah. Uh, different markets deliver different returns. Those mm-hmm. are, again, mm-hmm. so there's market, there's different returns from the market, and then there's returns from individual company investments, right? Yeah. Yeah. What basically I'm saying is that if you choose your investments wisely mm-hmm. and have stomach for volatility, <laughs> as I was saying yesterday in our team meeting, yeah. I think that the next 10 years yeah. are probably going to be so good for investing, but in specific things, in, in certain mm, things, mm, not mm. in everything, that it's going to be just as good as the last 10 years because this, you know, the low rate environment really mm. works in your favor if you're very, very good, yeah. right? If you're not very, very good, it kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're just going to find the very, very good. Yeah, right. And, and it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I, I think look, I think that's so. I, that's probably the key for me is the first or one of the first things. The stomach for volatility piece. That that broad idea that you know there is nothing. Well, the market tries to tell you things all the time, but all it really tells you is what's currently thinking, and that's very very different. Often, in fact, mostly from what is actually being valued or how it's being valued. It's just literally. I woke up this morning now, I'm feeling scared, or I woke up this morning, I'm feeling great. Um, Something like this is this is a I haven't got the numbers for the ASX, but I think I remember reading a stat about the US where something like in 52% of trading days the market was up, in 48% of trading days the market was down over an extended period of time, and yet the market's up phenomenal multiples and multiples and multiples, right? So those little incremental where the, where the, the up days are just a little bit more than the down days, and shares go up just a little bit more than they go down. 
um, on average. And again, that's the volatility piece you talk about. If you if you ask the market's mood, 48% of the time it was terrible. <laughs> the other 52% of the time it was great. And that is enough, believe it or not, over a length of time, at least in the past. And we can't ever make promises about the future. But in the past, that's been well and truly enough to actually say, you know what, have that something for volatility. There is nothing fundamental about the future that's being determined by the market prices today. At least, you know, I mean, anything could happen, right? We could have a, a fantastic recovery. We could be in, in clover by this time next year. We could have another recession by this time next year. The market doesn't know either of those two things and it's just fretting about it. There's nothing intelligent being told to you by the market when it does these things. But as you say, something for volatility is the only, to my mind, the only answer to this, right? Because you can't get away from it. You either participate or you don't. And participating is far, far more valuable and far more profitable than not participating at all. I agree. Mate, let's go to a little bit closer to home, inflation. We had the CPI numbers, the Consumer Price Index numbers, in other words, inflation numbers, uh, released this week. They were pretty decent. Now, it's again, it's all a bit of a glass half full, glass half empty story. Last quarter, though, it was negative. Largely, that was because childcare went from being paid to free. And that simply meant the average numbers, if well, they'd be, the Bureau of Statistics calculates them, meant that things were down. That's, that's fine. Up again this quarter, largely because, by the way, we started paying for childcare again. Normally, most people would say higher prices suck because you don't want to pay more than you have to. In this case, it does suggest the economy is at least kind of getting back to some sort of balance. But it's not enough, I don't think, or at least most people don't think, to sway the RBA. Now, um, Reserve Bank has given its clearest symbol yet, signal yet that it's going to cut rates this coming Tuesday, Melbourne Cup Day. People believing it might be 0.1%. Now, we said this a couple of months ago when the RBA, or a couple of weeks ago, when the RBA kind of in, in, you know, inferred it would and didn't. So maybe it's not going to, but there's not many market watchers you can find out there who are saying the RBA won't cut. So inflation, good. You know, interest rate cuts, in theory, good for the economy. I think, uh, listeners, I think I know your response to this one. Um, but it's a, the inflation numbers themselves, the, the interest rate scenario, where do you see the current state of the economy? So you know my response to that one. So, <laughs> so my response at a very high level is all of this is bogus. Right. <laughs> at a very high level, it's bogus because, um, well, okay. So the inflation numbers are being impacted by stimulus numbers, mm -hmm. right? Or stimulus dollars. Yes. Stimulus dollars are impacted by policy, mm -hmm. right? So if the stimulus dollar says go buy a used car, <laughs> yeah. well, uh, yes, it helps now, <laughs> but it may not help over the long term. Mm -hmm. So... I think there is, you know, actually over time what I've decided is, or what I feel now, mm. is I think the economic numbers that come out mm -hmm. actually not at all useful for investing. Okay. They're actually anti-investing in many ways. Okay. GDP this, that. Right, I mean, right. the GDP measure itself is fake, right? right. I mean, in many ways, it's, it's, it's a measure, but it doesn't measure... It's something. It, me <laughs> it measures something, right? So <laughs> if a government, for example, throws in a lot of money to build something mm -hmm. gdp could go up yeah, yeah the question really is did it build something useful mm -hmm. right and that answer we wouldn't know <laughs> until into the future <laughs> but in the meantime we can feel happy about the gdp numbers right yeah, yeah, no. so i think there's an assessment issue here uh, my assessment of this is very simple as i've said before i think mm -hmm. rba has done us uh has actually been very poor for us mm -hmm. i think the there is nothing that a 0.25% rate can't achieve mm -hmm. that 
I guess a 0.5% rate can't, couldn't achieve, mm-hmm. right? If you couldn't achieve it at 0.5, totally. yeah. you can't achieve it at 0.25. Yeah. <laughs> and you wouldn't achieve it at zero, exactly. and you probably wouldn't achieve it at minus 0.25, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And as I said, this is a prime example of how you're basically digging a bigger and bigger hole. This yeah. is the drip feed problem, right? I yeah. mean, the patient is on the table, and you're just keeping it alive using this heart-lung machine. You can keep it alive for a long time. <laughs> ultimately, the patient is going to die, yeah, right? right? So, so this is an example. I think this is policy paralysis, in my view. So <laughs> my theory is like, okay, this is what you want to do. This is going to create some sort of asset price inflation. Mm. Uh, nobody's going to notice now. Mm. Eventually, something is going to happen at some point. At what point, I don't know. But this is not how I would do it, as, as an example. Yeah. Um, so this is what I feel about it. Again, I, I basically ignore this news because it, it has... Um, okay, I'll put it... From an investing point of view, this is what I look at it. Yep. I This tells me that it's a bad idea to invest in old guard businesses, right. irrespective of the cheap price, because the cheap price is an illusion. Mm-hmm. And the example I like to give is if you had invested in GE mm-hmm. in 2009, well, it would look like this is a free cash flow machine that's, <laughs> that's throwing up enormous amount of funds, yeah, except... Yeah. And you'd invest it for 10 years and then your return would be abysmal, right? right, right, right. So is the near-term sh- and the long-term disconnect. Mm-hmm. Right now, nobody is thinking mm-hmm. long-term. Mm-hmm. Well, as an, as an investor and to fellow investor, I can say, you should think long-term because yep, that is to your advantage. Mm-hmm. If uh, The other piece of thing I would say is that, you know, if you have money, and you can afford to save, mm-hmm. first save. Mm-hmm. If you have the ability to save, then save enough and then invest. Invest for your future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can invest in individual companies that are doing well and secure your own future mm-hmm. and not hope the RBA is going to bail you out. <laughs> yeah, that's all right, that's all right. <laughs> because the RBA is not going to bail you out, is, exactly. is what I'm going to say. So that's my take on this. No, uh, it's a very cynical take, but I think, you know, the, little my bit, little, little bit. My little bit. <laughs> but my take is really, you know, this, this is all a sign that you need to take control of your future. <laughs> you need to take control, you know. Yeah. And again, if you, yeah, you save, yeah. invest, mm-hmm. build your own future, mm-hmm. forget the RBA. <laughs> All right. Um, sounds good. Mate, I, um, I think that's – look, I, you know what? You don't actually agree almost – not quite to the extent that you've uh, you made the point, but in general, I think rates – you know, every rate cut is incremental by definition. Everything is marginal by definition. It, it, is, it is almost mathematically certain that 0.1% has more economic activity than 0.25. But as you rightly point out, and I completely agree, by the time you get to this point, the impact is marginal, there's less ammunition left, and it is – only th- doing things, as you say, like stoking asset bubbles, which, frankly, as shareholders, we actually are benefiting from, right? PEs are higher, price earnings ratios are higher, therefore share prices are higher because interest rates are lower. So we benefited from that. Um, you won't hear many uh, investment commentators be as honest as we are and saying, actually, that, you know, yes, it's been nice for us, but you know what? No, I'd actually rather that not be the case. I'd rather make money out of the company's share prices going up because the value increases, not because of, you know, fiddling of the of the interest rate that, that under, underpins some of the calculations. So, you know, we would definitely rather, I'd, I'd rather interest rate of 1% right now than, than 0.1, quite frankly. If you're out there saying, well, hang on, that's terrible, you know, the answer would be if the economy is so weak that it needs support, either to Doc's point, you let it go and just let it fall where it falls and, and pick it up. Or you say, well, there's other tools available. I've said this before. The government has, and again, not to be political about it, but from a policy perspective, you've got two arms of policy, monetary, which is interest rates, and fiscal, which is everything the government does. <laughs> and you know, it is literally that different. I've used the example of the RBA flying a biplane and the, and the federal government you know, having a jumbo jet or a fighter jet with a million controls and heads-up displays and all sorts of cool things they've got they can make some changes to the economy with and in a targeted way, right, that it costs less. The impact, you know, the, the bluntest of tools is, is interest rates because it pushes share prices up unnecessarily. It pushes house prices up 
unnecessarily just to try and stoke a little bit of economic activity. Government's got a million ways to do that that isn't so broad. And I think that we agree on that piece at least that there are there are better ways, I think, to stimulate the economy if it needs stimulus than than using the blunt tool of interest rates. Yeah, like if I say something, I think the problem I think the RBA has, and maybe to, to some extent policy has, is the definition of what is what constitutes economic activity, right? Uh, and I think that's where the problem is. I think the problem is that they, mm-hmm. they, they I think, think of economic activity from a very 1900s model, mm-hmm. <laughs> not from a year 2000s model. <laughs> and and I think that is where the problem is. And this is why, you know, I think this is yeah. all wrapped in the wrong way. So yeah. um, anyways, we'll see what happens. No, that's, I think it's the right point. Mate, last one, US election. Um, God knows we're all sick of the US politics by now. And and frankly, by the time people listen to this, hopefully it's Friday or Saturday or Sunday, maybe Monday. If they're really like it's probably Wednesday and it's over. Uh, but in any case, um, there's an election coming next week before we do our next regular Friday podcast. We will know, I won't say the result of the election because goodness knows what, how much legal issue there'll be. We'll at least know how, how most of the votes were cast and we might have a sense of who the next or returned US president will be. Um, I'm curious for your thoughts though on investing under a new administration, and I say new specifically to mean a return to Trump or a, or a you know new President Biden. Um, they are potentially very different characters, and I think that's probably an understatement. With at least policy wise, and you know we know politicians don't always follow through on their on their promises at election time, but a reasonably or very different policy group of settings, including the tax rates, including the way they're going to fund things like healthcare. Um, I think it's you know at least, at least on on a, on a list of promises if you put them side by side, it's probably the widest gap I think in electoral kind of promises and potentially the impact on the next four years. So are you thinking differently? You're a big US investor, and of course um, you've got investments here, and we recommend stocks in Australia. So from both those perspectives, how are you thinking about the? Not, I'm not going to ask you to predict the outcome, though. You're welcome to. Um, how are you thinking about the fallout and, and preparing for the fallout from an election of either a returned President Trump or a newly elected President Biden? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the, the number one thing is that maybe by next week we actually don't know exactly, <laughs> exactly. what's going on, oh, man. and uh, well, that, maybe that'd be the worst of all. And, and, and maybe contrary to your assertion <laughs> that we would know what the most of the votes look like, yeah. maybe we actually do not know what most well, of the votes maybe, look like. Yeah, so there's that man. out. There's that. I'll just put that out. Um, <laughs> Gee, thanks. And, and uh, maybe by next week we have more volatility because nobody knows what's going on, uh, and it's going to take like you know a couple of months to count all these paper ballots and whatever not uh. exists, uh, mail-in ballots. So there's that. Uh, um, I am largely ignoring that because. So I'm answering your question here. The n- number one part: if there is a lot of volatility and the market goes down, that could actually be a buying opportunity because fundamentally, things it just means that there is a short-term um, noise that is giving us opportunities. So that might be actually interesting. Just and again, I'm not predicting that will happen. Yeah, yeah. It could happen. Yeah. Uh, and it could be an advantage for somebody who's willing to stomach that volatility. Right. If it happens in in the in the short to medium term. Even the short term, like you know, if there's a is a uncertainty in elections and there's no result known, and that we we'll probably know the results in two months, the market is probably going to throw a fit, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, you know, and the other world yeah, yeah. markets will throw a fit because yeah. you know some market in the U.S. has thrown a fit, and yeah. all of this, you know, and the and the world politics that goes with it, right? Yeah. So I mean, that could be an opportunity if it happens. Um, so there's that. Yep. In terms of policy differences, look, I think. Uh, uh, okay, so here's what I think. Mm-hmm. Largely, mm-hmm. I don't invest at all based on um, on government policies okay. in in the U.S. or on the government in the U.S. A couple of re- different reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think 
here's what can happen, right? So mm-hmm. over time, if you think about uh, the direction of the U.S. government, U.S. government used to, for example, spend a lot of money on research, mm-hmm. like R&D, and there was a lot of uh, stuff that used to happen because of that R&D flow, whether it's through universities mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, Lawrence Berkeley uh, National Laboratories or through NASA, right? Those yeah, things right. over time have gone down. Yep, yep, yep. Right. So, you know, we wouldn't have the internet, for yeah, example, okay. if the US yep. government hadn't invested in yes. through it for DARPA. Um, if they restore that, that actually is an, is a good thing yeah. <laughs> if, uh, via, uh, via tax cuts, uh, taxes, right? If right. The taxes are being put in that direction, that's, right, a good, right, right. that's a good thing. If they don't. Just for those who don't, sorry, really quick, I'm just going to stop really quickly because we, we talk about it like everyone knows it, but effectively, just a really quick potted history for those who don't know, the internet grew out of, and let me, let me say what I think it is, and you, you correct me and tell me what it actually is, um, it was effectively a US military communication system originally that kind of then became a kind of an inter university communication system that eventually became something that was repurposed for people like you and I to use and for our listeners to be listening to this exactly on the same exactly the same infrastructure podcast uh, sending is different but effectively the same kind of idea right the the very base of that was some military spending on a better improved computer to computer communication system did I get that roughly right yeah that's absolutely right so yes it was a four points of the US four different parts of the US connected (laughs) isn't that crazy can you imagine uh, what was this 1960s so this was the late 60s can you imagine being those blokes going you know what we should do and then to think now, fifty or sixty years later, well, fifty years later, it's called roughly. To, I mean, hopefully some of those guys are still alive because they deserve to see what it's become. But man, can you think about let's connect some computers through to oh my god, the internet? Yeah. So a lot of these people, like Vince Cerf and uh, yes. uh, Klein Rock, you know, so you know these people are still alive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all in their early forties, cool right? Um, you know, and and they're still around to uh, see uh, see uh. the success the internet has seen. But what my point is that that mm-hmm. sort of thing has gone down over the years, yeah, right? Yeah. So if a Biden presidency, as an example, restores that, well, that's actually <laughs> good. Again, you wouldn't yeah. see that yes, in, the, right, right, good point. in the near term, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. What has happened though, is as that has gone down, a lot of the inventiveness has shifted mm. to corporate, mm. right? Does a presidency, you know, does somebody's presidency affect um, how inventive, um, mm. you know, Amazon could be or how mm. inventive mm. Apple could be or how inventive Google? These companies have no dearth of funds, right? Yeah, right. If the only thing that they have dearth of is talent, mm. Mm. right? P- potentially direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that, I think where this is interesting is whether or not the policies are going to enable new things. Yeah. That's fair. That's right. So if, if somebody's policy enables, so for mm, example, mm. if there is a healthcare policy that enables digital healthcare, right. that opens up an entire different market, right? And there are all these different players mm, that are trying mm, to grow in that market. And to be clear, you're talking about here about the investment opportunities. Specifically, I'm specifically right? about the investment yeah. opportunities, right? Because I think what's going to happen is as you open, as you mm, make mm, a mm. market open up, yeah. Companies, inventive companies, will find opportunities to actually grow in that market. I, I, as you're talking now, I've never actually thought about it this way, but I, but I like your way of thinking. In my head, as you were thinking about that, what I had in my in my head is is a map that was all of a sudden being written by somebody. Almost, you know, the idea of the metaphorical, you know, go west, young man, in, in the US, or the metaphorical mapping for the first time, at least by Europeans, of some of Australia's outback, right? And and the cattle grazing that came from that. I don't want to get into the politics and the stuff of that. Of course, the Aboriginal Australians were here first, but. The idea that all of a sudden when you kind of, the government opens up some land for grazing, for example, that idea of then the farmers rush in and start grazing it and make some money, 
a super old world example, right? a super 800s example. But but as, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, you know, a government almost drawing a map for, for digital healthcare, for example, and then and giving people the opportunity to go and stake their claim. The, like, you know, use a gold rush example. That same kind of analogy feels like what you're describing. Am I, am I kind of- Yeah, that, that's like, absolutely right? right. So like, I mean, the short-term reaction is, oh, Biden might, for example, as let's say I'm using Biden as an example, yeah, Biden yeah. might increase taxes. Yeah. If Biden increased taxes, that's in, in the near term, not good. Right. But if the taxes then enable a revolution in the healthcare sector, nice, yeah, yeah. that's actually brilliant if yeah, you're investing yeah. in that sector. Yeah, that's an nice. example. Uh, another example would be for a Biden presidency, for example, is a, a tremendous focus on uh, a non-fossil fuel going mm, back mm, to mm. the Paris Accord. Mm. That opens up another humongous sector. Mm, so mm. My, my point is, and then if it's not Biden, if it's Trump, then it's continuation of this and a few other things. Well, that too has, oper- all I'm saying is as an <laughs> investor, it doesn't matter which mm, side mm, is batting, mm. <laughs> as, as long as you can find stuff yeah, right. that has long-term potential to to win, right? And and everybody's sowing seeds in some ways mm, that are mm, going to have mm. an impact 15, 20 years from now, right? So yeah. you gotta, you got to, you know, again, this is mostly useful for those people who have got that horizon, right? If you've yeah. got 20-year horizon to invest, yeah. I think you can always find stuff. You know what I really like about this conversation, mate, is I think it's, it's a really useful reminder. There's a thing called second order thinking and investing. And the idea is basically everyone knows what the first order response is going to be, right? So um, if you put tax, if you put taxes up, and you've said before um, outside of this conversation that you're not sure whether even if a, if a party goes to a, an election with a platform, whether it'll actually happen. So whether Biden actually does increase taxes if he's elected, whether it is a meaningful difference if he does it, are all different things we need to resolve. But the first order, impact, first order impact of higher taxes is, oh my God, lower profits, therefore lower PE or lower, not PEs, same PEs, lower prices, right? So if, if um, let's use GE because you used it before, if GE has to pay 5% of its profits in, higher in tax, then we're going to get 5% less bottom line profits and dividends from GE. And so the share price should come down. That, that's, that should happen, right? That's the first order impact. Everyone can see that. And frankly, everyone's responding or responded to that or will respond to it at the time. Your bigger point, the more important point for investors, is a second order impact of not only, well, two things, I suppose, in my mind. The first is what GE is able to do over the long term is probably more important than its tax rate anyway. But secondly, as you say, the money that's collected, if, if that money is used in one of a different dozen ways, there can be a dozen different outcomes for investors. And that's probably over the long term, far, far more important, far more worth thinking about than what does the increase in tax rate do in the next financial year, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, as I said, I, I do not look at tax policy at all. It does not matter. Uh, yeah, if it, it helps my prices go up now, I feel good about my share price. <laughs> <laughs> share prices are up. Everybody feels good about it. Uh, share prices go down. I wouldn't feel good about it. But I think it's it's largely immaterial. The other thing I, I also firmly believe mm-hmm. is, um, so you know, good corporations have some of the smartest people. Mm-hmm. Uh, governments by default don't have some of the smartest people. Uh-huh. Governments make decisions thinking that they're, you know, like a, a good example might be, I'm going to regulate this business because it is big. Then they create regulation which makes it hard for the small ones to compete because they've uh-huh. made so much regulation, yeah, right. right, that the small ones can't cope with regulation, right? So this sort of, what you said, second order, yeah, yeah. like, I mean, it's completely missing yeah. in large parts of governments, right? <laughs> because they just can't do second order thinking. Yeah, right, right, so, um, yeah. so that, that's, you know, so sometimes what happens is you create regulation that actually helps incumbents. It's not immediately obvious it's helping incumbents, but you know. So I, and that's how, I think that's how you know when something becomes an incumbent, right? When they start arguing for regulation. When Facebook goes from the the, the the innovative kind of you know startup disruptor to you know what we need more rules. Yeah, you think that that's the point which they realize they become the incumbent. They'll benefit from restrictions. Yeah, in, absolutely, in because you know, you know when Facebook is going, yeah, yeah, you really think internet should be regulated. Yeah. At yeah. that time, you should really think 
very hard and clear that okay, what are we really doing, right? Exactly. And, and exactly. That's the thing. So you know, again, as I like to say, my bet is yeah. find good companies, find <laughs> the smartest people, invest on in them. They will, you know, make your capital grow. Uh, everything else is noise. And you know, I'll tell you too, just to finish this off. Doc is dead, right? And the difference is that most of the time, because if you're a journo or a market commentator in air quotes, whatever that whatever that is, and I've been known to turn up on the occasional media appearance from time to time, but if you're one of those people, um, your job is to make news out of stuff, right? And so that kind of goes back to the conversation we had before is for all of the things we just talked about, all the macro stuff, your answer, my answer consistently through all of those different questions is stay long-term, focus on the companies, focus on the earnings power. You can't do a headline about that. And so, you know, I don't blame the journalists for doing the headlines because the headline is the headline. Market's down 3.5%. That's a thing. That is news. That is worth reporting on. Now, whether it's worth asking people why, I guess they really just want to know why, so I guess they feel compelled to. And while there are people prepared to put their heads up and say, oh, I think it's because X, that gets reported because I guess it gets reported. And again, I kind of don't directly blame the journos for that because they're not necessarily investors. They're not necessarily schooled the way we are. And frankly, you know, it's very hard to make a business as a, as a, as a you know, a click and read business. How do you make a business out of, yeah, nothing happened today is really important. Come back and check in a year's time. <laughs> you're not going to be a news agency uh, if, you're, if your business is doing that. So, but, but remember, at the end of the day, for all of the noise, for all of the talk, Doc's point about long-term futures for long-term businesses and businesses that in theory – um, can grow or hopefully grow, will keep growing, um, or even businesses that, uh, that's not your style, Doc, but are, are cheap and cheap because the short-term use is hurting them, but the long-term future is better than the market predicts. That's where the opportunity is, right? The, we need as investors to find businesses if we want to beat the market that the market is wrong about. Either they're going to grow faster than even the optimistic current view of growth, in other words, those growth companies, or they're simply going to grow something which is better than decline the market's forecasting um as we come out of every recession you see lots of companies race back because the market you know left them for dead overlooked them didn't bother with them got too pessimistic it's the variant perception that matters even more than that doc i will say just for those who don't who are listening but don't want to necessarily we think individual stocks are great ways to invest because you can maximize your returns and beat the market if you're not doing that just remember the market will go up and down and the short term blips like today probably on the market by the time this is this is recorded in the can um you know, they will be forgotten in history. Even if even this is the beginning of another 10 or 15% fall, that will still be also forgotten in the in the fullness of history. So remember, focus on the companies, focus on the price you're paying, focus on the future. That's where the value is. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. One of the things that got me this week was retail sales. Now, two different, very different retailers um, but with really, really, really impressive retail sales numbers in what is supposed to be a recession, coal sales were up 9.7%. Now, if you're not used to following supermarkets, that's these are normally 2%, 3%. And sometimes low as one when, when food deflation, when the price wars are on, they'd be lucky to grow at all. So 9.7% is, is a phenomenal, like it is so far outside the standard. You know, the old, the old long tails, the old, you know, Six Sigma event. Um, it doesn't happen, yet it happened. Super retail discretionary retail middle of a recession sales are up guess what 25 percent these are phenomenal numbers mate and let's not talk too much about the recession because we've kind of done that a little bit but it's kind of relevant as a setting because a things are supposed to be terrible but b you know super retail and uh, online sales are up 130 percent for example in the first 21 weeks of the year um these are phenomenally large numbers and i'm curious as to your thoughts on what do they say about the future of retail, the current state of retail? I know you're not a retail investor necessarily, but these numbers surely at least are 
you know, you're at least taking note of them. Do you have any perspectives on what our members and listeners should be thinking about retail stocks in the light of some of these just standout numbers? Yeah, so like I mean, retail is not really a thing that I do much, but you know, I have I have some comments on this one. I'll make it quick. Hmm. It's in Coles. I've been shopping a lot in Coles, so maybe I'm helping them. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> but but here's the thing, right? If restaurants are closed or yeah. are at lower capacity, people have to cook at home. Yeah. <laughs> so if you cook at home, maybe you're buying more stuff, right? So that's helping. Uh, Does this change trends or is this a one-off for you? Like next year, the coal sales almost negative because you suck out all that growth that came from cook at home. All of a sudden, you and I are like, you know, we cooked at home for the last year. I'm like, I'm, because you don't even have to necessarily abandon the supermarket. You just say, well, are you, last year I did everything at home. This year I'm going out once a week, once a fortnight. The proportional fall, if, once a fortnight is effectively, what's that, 6%, 7%? Um, decline in your, you know, stay-at-home meal preparation. That could be a decline in sales next year for Coles. Yeah, like, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, like, I haven't been to a good restaurant in, like, now ages. Mm, so, mm. Um, and there might be others who, you, you know, in, in, the same, in, in that same boat. But here's the thing, like, you know, I think... Uh, these numbers are great numbers to put uh, as headlines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the way to think about calls would be, mm-hmm. well, okay, well, there are three major retailers uh, or uh, supermarkets in, you know, grocers and supermarkets mm-hmm. in Australia. Um, so Coles, Woolworths, and uh, Aldi, mm-hmm. right? We have a fixed population that's not growing anymore mm-hmm. right now, uh, at least for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, how much can, as an aggregate, as a group, we can eat, yep. right? We can't eat a lot more over time. Unless well, we, want, we, we all make it very fat staying yeah, at home. Yeah, unless we want our PMIs to go up significantly, <laughs> we're not going to be able to, like, we're not, you know, right, fat right. cows, right? So, yep. um, on average, uh, we're not going to be able to keep up with a 10% increase unless they keep jacking mm-hmm. prices up, right? Mm-hmm. So, that's the way I think about uh, about these companies. Like, you don't, uh, here's the thing, like, I mean, these are like, staples and companies that you know really are fully mature in many ways and these are going to give you like you know some return right i mean if you buy them at the right price so i almost ignore looking at calls that's my me personally um i think the super retail one is more interesting Uh more interesting because on a relative basis what is interesting is that well the online sales again you can explain right and people are a little bit Mm -hmm. no worried about going to the shop and it's easier to shop online so um it's interesting in my mind because for a couple of things it's not interesting actually in my mind because of what super retail is doing it's interesting for a couple of different things one is today if you are a business that want that has a physical presence Mm -hmm. and you don't have an online presence you're doomed (laughs) I think that's okay. fair. So Other that, than really, really, really niche cases. Like, I like you know, unless you're like, you know, unless like you're like, you know, you're right. you, like if you're a hairdressing yeah. Yeah, salon or like <laughs> Hard some, to cut hair online Yeah, so you can't, you know, the, if you don't have the technology yet, <laughs> yet. for that to ha- <laughs> ma- make happen. But otherwise, like, I mean, for most retailers, not yeah. having an online presence is like basically debt, it? right? It's debt. It's yeah. not even debt by thousand cuts. It's like yeah. debt now. Yeah. Um, that's one. Number two is it's relatively straightforward mm. to start your business, put your business online, Yeah. right? There's so many software companies, you know, there's companies like Shopify that enable you, you know, you can take payments, somebody else can do your warehousing. It's simple, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which means everybody can be an online uh, store, which means, you know, online by itself is no longer an advantage. That's yeah, the right. other thing to think about, right? I mean, if you're just online only, well, you know, somebody else could be online and physical yeah, yeah. and they could have a wider reach. So there's that to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, finally, 
Well, super retail basically shows that our discretionary money has been going to, you know, uh, Nike pants and Nike shoes <laughs> and maybe <laughs> Adidas shoes and stuff like that. And a bit of car parts. Uh, exactly, you yeah, know, yeah. and maybe, you know, buying cricket bats and tennis balls <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, um, you know, because I'm just thinking of Rebel. I like, actually really yeah. like uh, shopping at Rebel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so there's that, right? Mm-hmm. Again, I would think about super retail as a business, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what price am I paying? Mm-hmm. What's their growth opportunities? Again, yep. I think Australia population, 25 million growing probably at, you know, a couple hundred thousand max yep. over the long term. Uh, what is what is it that they can do? Mm-hmm. What price am I paying? And mm-hmm. that's the sort of, you know, um, yeah. If, what, if I had to invest on this theme, I would actually be looking for platforms okay. that enable what super retail group is providing. Okay. Because that platform mm. is where the money is. Mm. That is the layer that's actually sucking up <laughs> and that can grow, <laughs> right? Because there are multiple super right. retailers around the world. If I can get to the platform, well, then I've got an advantage. I, I've got a question for you about this. So I, I kind of, I think I agree on one level, but my, I, I'm uncertain because I can see a different alternative, right? So on one level, everyone can be online, so everyone is online. So a business like Shopify that effectively gives you the infrastructure to make those stores, makes a fortune, right? Everyone's online, so everyone's online. And if you think about, you know, take a re- take a retail, oh, sorry, real estate example, they're effectively collecting rent on every retailer in the, in the country because they're providing some, you know, not exactly the real estate space, but that kind of idea, right? Or maybe maybe a um, the electricity company is a better example. So you get to do all of that. And so that, that is massive, as you rightly say. I also wonder though, that in an online world, yes, the space is infinite and Amazon famously got its leg up by being able to stock almost everything in the world because there was no inventory cost. That, that's all true. I wonder though over time if because there are so many and because our attention is so limited, if you go up to the street at your local your suburban shopping centre, you can shop in the cafe or the, the clothes shop or the supermarket that's there, but you don't go any further. Over time, don't the biggest and the best and the most obvious become those that succeed? I mean, you know, there's probably, I think about how many auto parts stores there would have been back in the day, right? There's one in every town. There's a Repco in every town or a super cheap auto or a Auto One or I can't remember the old names of them they've all consolidated themselves because there's fewer brands online. If my first thought is, oh, I've got a super retail, the likelihood of the local, you know, we live in this, I live in the Southern Highlands, the local barrel, you know, auto part, independent auto parts supplier, maybe I Google barrel auto parts or maybe I Google auto parts generally or something else, but maybe I just say the top of mind brand is super, super retail. Maybe there's actually fewer actual retail outlets of any substance in time rather than more because that kind of law of you know, economics of scale starts to work in, in favour of those who are already biggest and best like the Amazons of the world. Um, don't we end up with fewer larger rather than more everywhere and don't the economies of scale eventually put those smaller ones out of business? Yeah, so that's partly, I think, true. Um, here's my, you know, so I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I think- I'm not saying it's a strong view, but like I literally have know, both those views in my head and I haven't resolved the answer. Yeah, like, so like as an investor, like when I look at this, um, and say I'm only, so this is like a trend investing to some extent, right? So mm. there's a trend happening, mm, there's mm. a transformation happening and we want to take advantage of that, right? If I had to bet on this, yep. I would be betting on platform, yeah. the enabler, because it doesn't matter who wins, the platform wins, <laughs> right, okay. right? So, uh, and, and I'm just full, full disclosure, yeah, I'm not yeah. a Shopify uh, shareholder, yeah. but you know, things like Shopify are the platform that's enabling mm, it. Mm, mm they're by default the winner. Yes. Right? yes they're the default yes. winner. Yes. Much easier to invest in a default winner mm-hmm. than to find another retailer <laughs> yeah, who's going to succeed. That's right? true. Just that's invest, true. you know, like just investing yeah. is all about sometimes making it simple for yourself. Yeah. Just 
I'm Fine. not saying you should invest in Shopify, by the way. I've said before in this podcast, I, it's one I'd we'd be very close to investing in. I just, yeah. it was more that thought of like trying to think about how how online retail creates winners and losers. I absolutely agree with you. I, everyone's starting a retail shop, everyone's jumping on Shopify. And it just strikes me that it's the equivalent of a bit like the Wild West example. Everyone's gone west, everyone's digging for gold. Yeah, eventually, and the picks and shovels example is the platform example. The people who provide the the means yeah. win. So I, I take that point. But at some point, the gold rush is over. I can I can imagine a scenario maybe in the next recession or maybe just when maybe it's not maybe it's the next boom when everyone goes to the biggest guys. I can imagine a scenario where Shopify loses twenty five percent of its current outlets in a twelve or eighteen month period of time just because they all go. Oh, we thought we should. We thought it was going to work. Turns out we can't make it work. We're closing this thing down. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's true. Like again, uh, I'm not making a Shopify case yet. I personally don't own the shares, but mm-hmm. if if the market is humongous and there's there's a long tail that it can you know it can mm-hmm. basically um, uh, harvest, it has a much higher probability in my mind. Again, yeah, right. without talking about you know the the thing with individual retail mm-hmm. is that the individual retailer has to win, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, then it becomes a question of well, what is the population that it can reach? <laughs> what is the total population? Yeah, right. How much more penetration can it get? Yeah, yeah. Shopify's, you know, in many ways is 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 infinite, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, whereas super retail is limited. Then you have to consider. I think valuation, for example, mm. is a lot more important for super retail than it is for Shopify. Nice one, right? Because so, the the opportunity is smaller, so you have to be closer with the valuation. Yeah, yeah. And again, as I said, I really love uh, shopping at mm. uh, Rebel. Mm. Um, but like, you know, if I have to buy an Under Armour shirt, I could buy it at Rebel yeah. or I could use Rebel's app mm-hmm. or I could use Amazon Prime yeah. because that thing is, is just on <laughs> my face <laughs> and I could just buy it there. Which is what they're right? hoping you'll do and what people are planning on doing in large numbers given the growth of Amazon. Yeah, so like, I mean, you know, those, those, those I think, I, yeah. I, I always like to think, I think from an investing point, I mean, investing lesson here is think about the opportunity, yep. right? Think about the growth potential. Mm-hmm. Think about what the upside there is in the growth. What's mm-hmm. the downside to growth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that gives you a sense, yeah. right? And that sense, then you can apply and see what the valuation is. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I, you know, um, yeah. And, and and I think I agree with the point that, you know, there are going to be fewer, bigger retailers with yeah. online and so on because, yeah. you know, it, it, it makes sense. The mm-hmm. scale wins. No, so I will say only for the sake of uh, partly fighting my own corner, also partly just to give it give a different context. You're a growth investor, and probably the the, the growthiest investor we have in our business, at least in Australia. Um, I will say for what it's worth, also that you know at, at Everlasting Income, which is the least growthy service I think we have, um, we've actually made about thirty or forty percent on on super retail buying at the right price. So to your point about valuation, it's not to say you can't make money buying, you know, limited limited uh, market retailers or, or a business at the right price. But as you rightly point out. You can't pay any price for super retail and make money. If Shopify is successful over twenty years, you can almost pay any price, knowing it'll knowing it'll grow, you know, like a weed from here. Yeah, no, yeah. So I'm not again. Let's just clarify, and, and that's a great point, right? The the point is that you super retail group is not a hyper growth investment. Yes, right? That's pretty clear. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's a bad investment. Right. But it doesn't, right? mean, it's, and, but it doesn't mean it's a good one. And this is I think my point wasn't that to disagree with you or to try and say either I'm right or whatever. it was more just to point out there are different ways of making money. Yeah. But you've got to know which way you're trying to make money because buying super retail for hyper growth is a really crazy idea. Yeah, I, mean, I think from from you know, I think that the thing that I like to think about mm. is risk versus reward sort of scale, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I'm taking longer risk, but I'm willing yeah. uh, I'm I'm taking a little bit more volatility. I'm willing to wait longer for yeah, my for returns. Sure. And then in return for that, I might get, you know, 20% compounded. Mm-hmm. Somebody else might be happy. Well, look, it's a, it, it, like if you buy super retail shares today, you're probably going to get dividend. Yep. You're going to get some franking mm-hmm. and you probably are going to make like 8%, 9% return, yeah, 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 whatever yeah. it is. Yep. And if that's what you want, yep. Yep. 
that's okay. Like again, people need to know what they want, right? I mean, Super if that's important. what they want, yep. and not everybody wants to take okay, my capital can decrease by thirty <laughs> percent, and but I'm <laughs> going to make twenty percent right. compounded right. over twenty years. Twenty yeah, percent compounded yeah. over twenty years yeah, yeah. is phenomenal return. Stupid large number, yes. right? But <laughs> if you're today. 65, yeah, you probably yeah. don't want to wait till 85 to make that 20%. Well, if you're going to lose 30, 40% between you need to sell some shares yeah. for, for, you know, yeah. income so, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, so there's, there's, yeah, yeah, like, I mean, otherwise none of these stocks would exist, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. So there's a reason why it exists. Mate, um, let's, let's quickly go corporate um, and specific for a second, just with a couple of, we won't spend too much time on this. I'm pretty sure our listeners know our views on banks. I'm going to, I'm going to assume that if you listen to at least one of our podcasts, you know our views. If you listen to four or five of our podcasts, you would probably hear us in your sleep. Um, ANZ Profit was down 42% today, mate. Largely on a combination of increased bad debts, increased remediation costs. I think I've said before, what drives me nuts is the banks are still finding problems from the Royal Commission 18 months later. Now, I get that to forensically review this stuff takes time. I get there's a lot of transactions, a lot of customers. I get it's super complex. 18 months is a bloody long time to find another problem, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is. But I mean, you know, you think, about the, you think about these systems, right? They were written so many years ago yeah. in tools that probably nobody knows how to maintain. They've got to get someone out of retirement to work out how this thing was programmed. Well, yeah, like, you know, <laughs> it, it was like the, the yeah. lights in Sydney uh, Sydney's uh, uh, train system was not working. They had to get engineers from India and Pakistan. No. It, this was like a few years That's back. That's amazing. Yeah, and the reason they had to do that is, well, the, the only places that had those oh, light right. systems were those well, two those places. those places, how right? funny. So you needed to get an engineer who could actually figure it out. So, I mean, this is stuff like that. But, you know, I don't blame mm -hmm. them. I mean, it's unfortunate, but, you know, I... I totally expect that there'll be mm -hmm. stuff like this happening. Uh, it's they're not doing it deliberately. I think mm -hmm. it's just it's just happening. Yeah, just gotta live with it. Reminder too, without going on too much of a tangent, the when you're disrupting, you can get old really fast and get calcified really fast, right? Like banking, some of the banking technology and Australia's banks. I think it's fair to say, well, amongst traditional banks, are among the the best in the world for technology adoption. Things like pay and go, internet banking. I won't say we're absolute pioneers, but Australians as a, as a rule and Australian banks as a rule have been really fast on this stuff. But the more innovation happens, the more layers and generations of old tech you've got you're trying to build on top of. It's kind of one of those things where you, you know, your foundations are slowly decaying as you're building and building and building. And by the time you realize the foundations are in trouble, you built so many layers on top of that, trying to jack up the, you know, again, use the building analogy, jack up the house and try and you know, fix the footings, becomes really, really hard and expensive and difficult, right? I guess that is the that is the downside of getting old. I mean, if you if you make a lot of money for people as you get old, then it's probably a worthwhile trade-off. But if you think about the businesses that are building brand new banking systems today versus an ANZ who's got to try and say, We've had, you know, I reckon there'd be literally thousands of loan products over the last 20 years. If you think about it, every time they rolled out a new product with new features, then they grandfathered that one, started a new one, grandfathered that one, just like Telco, had the same problem. Telstra spent two years trying to whittle down the number of programs it's got. And if you ring them, sometimes you'll say, they'll say, oh, you can't have the current one you're on because we're not offering that anymore, but you have this other one. I can't imagine the, the sheer complexity of a even a 20-year-old business, let alone a bank that's been putting new tech in place since probably 1945. It's a, you know, I... I <laughs> A lot of value was created by, by ANZ and there'll be more money may, maybe made by traditional banks than some of the neobanks that try and then fail and go to zero. But the ones that win have a really significant, again, it's not an advantage because the, the death rate is really high. But if you manage to get through, once you hit critical mass, having a simpler, and again, I'm not the techie here, but a similar co simpler code base, a simpler business operation, no legacy issues to deal with, that's a phenomenal advantage once you hit escape velocity. That, that's right. Yeah, but again, like I mean, banking is highly regulated too, right? Yes, so it, that really favors the incumbent. Yes, it talking, does. Right? Yeah, um, and I'm kind of okay with that, by the way. As, as a society, as a trade-off, I'm okay yeah, with that. But yeah, so financially and investing-wise, it's, it's certainly a, yeah. a challenge. 
Yeah, but, uh, again, like, I mean, a lot of these things that we are seeing with ANZ is not, Mm-mm. they're problematic, but then they're not hugely detrimental in mm. in the sense that, you know, they're, they're at least discovering, right? Mm-mm-mm. It's better than not discovering. They're discovering the problems. They're trying to address them. So it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Mate, uh, la- next one quickly to Coke. Coca-Cola Amitol, the Australian Coke bottler. Um getting bought out by the Europeans. Now, they say they're open for counterbids. They're probably desperately hoping for a counterbid right now. Either way, CCA or CCL is the code, but CCA won't exist on our boards in a couple of months' time. Um, I, I used to be a shareholder. I, I quite uh, – I've got – you're drinking Coke Zero now. I've got one in front of me. Um, <clears throat> bit, bit of a look behind the scenes there. I'm not a shareholder anymore. A uh, bit sad to see the company go. It started believing on it as British-American tobacco in Australia, and renamed Amatol and then picked up the Coke bottling rights. So it didn't even start life as a Coke bottler, uh, but Coke Europe looked like they're going to take over Coca Cola Amatol, make it part of their operations. Again, maybe some sort of inevitable growth and consolidation we talked about, scale we talked about before. What I think was just interesting is that uh, Link Administration, the kind of the share registrar slash kind of administration provider in a whole lot of areas like mortgages, is also having a takeover bid coming through now. It just gives me the sense that companies or markets are more open now to believing we're out of the recession and happy to open those checkbooks a little bit. It does seem like the start of or the return of, the resurgence of, the whatever you want to call it, recovery of corporate activity and M&A. Do you have a, a thought as to whether this is sim- uh, symptomatic or just, just you know, one-off? Um, I actually don't have a thought real thought on this and my only thought was well one bottler is buying another bottler how interesting <laughs> is that right that's I mean, why I didn't talk about the company itself it's more just the fact that companies you know for, for six months there wasn't much being done right because everyone yeah. was scared everyone was raising capital and kind of you know circling the wagons it feels like now this is the reverse of that that, that they're starting to get a bit brave again that they're starting to kind of put their toe in the water and some PE guys some trade buyers are starting to just do some deals that make sense yeah I think that's interesting um, I don't know if it like just not that interesting just not that it's yeah like it's you know like let's, it's a bottler it just puts you know liquid that comes from coke uh, i don't know where oh, mate, uh, it's very good liquid though it's for the liquid somebody it is, else it is it is liquid gold to be fair yeah, but the liquid somebody else makes the liquid puts it in a boat sends it here we literally take it and pour it into a bottle That's and now now wonderful australian carbonated water and some yeah, but some sugar, like, but, but the sugar is coming from somewhere else, and and the same thing, you know, the the European bottlers, right? I mean, they too get. Them. It's like yeah. I don't know why they're excited. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what they're gonna. It's it, this one actually, I don't understand. I understand okay. the logic of uh, of uh, of private equity taking say link uh, out. They mm-hmm. probably think it's you know. I get the logic there. The, the logic there is that there's some valuable things here yeah, and yeah. Uh, and valuable piece of technology mm-hmm. and it's probably stuff that we can actually fix, improve yeah. Yeah. and they're probably going to list it back. <laughs> there is something funny about... So I think that's right. I think also with Coke, and uh, this is probably a watch out for, for some people, if, you're, if your business is a subpar business but that's what you do, it's very hard to say, actually, this business isn't great. So we sold shares in Coca-Cola until it's share advisor because we figured that the future wasn't bright enough, so we got rid of it. Now, I lost money doing it, so I made a mistake in the recommendation in the first place. So I'll take my... I'll take my. Uh, but it's not a mistake. For the selling part, it's not a mistake, I would no, say. No, but it was a mistake to buy it. <laughs> yeah, anyway, okay. So, so, yeah, okay. So but what I mean is, to some degree, you know, we, we recognize that's not a great business in terms of the future and the current price and sold it. Coke Europe is in the business of Coke bottling. And so they kind of look around the world and go, I guess we should do some more of that then. And it's a really, it's just it's just worth thinking about as an investor because there are a few businesses who will say, you know what, our current business sucks. Let's get into a better business. 
And I think that's, to some degree, Amateur probably did that when they moved into bottling back in the day compared to tobacco sales, although arguably that did okay for them for a while. Um, but if you think about it, there's very few businesses that can honestly say to themselves, this kind of sucks. Let's go and improve the business by buying something with better economics with the cash we've got. And I think uh, this wasn't actually a Warren Buffett example, so uh, feel free to, to have your view on that one. But you know, Ber- Buffett bought Berkshire Hathaway, which was a textile mill, took the money from that, bought a bit of business. That, you know, the, enti- the entire play was, this sucks, we're not putting more money into this, I'll go and invest in something else. And most companies can't do that. So if you're in a business like a, a Coke Europe, and then, you know, it might be fine, but when they're buying Coca-Cola Amateur as their, as their growth strategy, as their kind of, here's how we can best use capital, it talks to the thinking of the business itself, i.e., we can't think of anything better to do, and this is what we do, so let's do more of it, rather than how can we improve the quality of the cash in our business. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. Maybe people should just frame that because, uh, yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. Mate, I was going to ask you about Microsoft. But I'm going to hold that till next week if you don't mind. I don't mind. We've got one quick question to finish this off and then how about we do a mailbag episode? Is that uh, a question or that's <laughs> like basically like, okay, we're going to do a mailbag episode anyways. You're not going to disagree. No, I don't. You love I, I never, I never. It's I your never favorite part of it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Mate, this is actually going to sound like an ad and it's not supposed to be, but I just want to give everyone a fair warning because the question on our list uh, comes from Michael. Now, Michael asked a very personal question, but it's not super personal, at least when I explain the conversation. And frankly, it's a it's a, well, it's a risky question to talk about family, but let's, uh, let's get into it anyway. Because Michael wants to know about my mother-in-law. Now, you know, we, we know the jokes. Michael says, Hi Scott, how's your mother-in-law's everlasting income strategy going? I'm a retired 70-year-old with my Super and State Plus Aware Super and recently opted for the newly allowed lower limit of two and a half, that's the withdrawal limit, mainly from uh, from 5%, maybe so that I, mainly so that I could better maintain my capital. So just a really, really quick one on that. The rules used to be you had to take 5% of your capital out. Uh, the government allowed it to lower that because of poor returns and poor economy to say, hey, you no, no longer need to take at least five. You can now drop that to two and a half, keep more money in super, let it build up, which I think was a, a good decision. He says, my portfolio was earning approximately four and a half prior to COVID. My own calculations show that earnings would need to be at least seven and a half percent to have cash flow income plus maintain the capital. I read your share of, I read your share advisor publications, but do not yet invest outside my super. I'm seriously consider, considering how I can have cash flow and maintain capital assets better than current arrangements. And I recall the everlasting income strategy for your mother-in-law you wrote about some time ago. Best wishes, Michael. Uh, Michael, thanks for that. And this is this is going to sound like an ad doc. It's not supposed to be, but it, it was. It's a question we had, and I thought, given we talked about everlasting income a little bit earlier, it was the right question to kind of finish this particular episode off with. Um, so my mother-in-law's strategy. The, the the backstory here is we launched a service at the Motley Fool called Motley Fool Everlasting Income, uh, and it was launched because. It basically, I, I, I created the strategy for my mother-in-law to manage her retirement assets. And we had a conversation at the full, this is now, gee, maybe almost four years ago now, uh, where we kind of said, well, you know, what, what other services could we offer our members? And I just happened to mention, well, by the way, I'm doing this for my mother-in-law. Maybe we've got other members who would like something like this. And the strategy is exactly, Michael, as you, as you point out, the aim is to slowly grow capital, but deliver quality tax-effective income in the way of monthly cash flow, now, we don't actually do it. We don't manage the money, to be super clear. The Motley Fool doesn't manage money. We have a sister company that does, but we only give advice. But we have a model portfolio. We put a million bucks of the Motley Fool's money in it. And the objective there is to pull out some money every single month, plus hopefully grow the capital slowly, but 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 meaningfully over time. Um, it's going really well. The the service, I won't, I won't, if you don't mind, talk about my mother-in-law specifically, just for her privacy. Um, the service itself, the capital's up about 15 or 17% last time I looked, um, over three and a half years. That's not much, but you know... <laughs> five-ish percent, which is, you know, not unreasonable by the way, but but not, not going to break the bank. Um, and we've paid out during that period of time 
4% of the starting capital in annualized every single month. So we've broken up the 12 pieces every single month. Plus we've generated franking credits on top of that. So the strategy is working um, is the honest answer. Um, if you want to join, feel free to email us. You can email the member support team at membersupportau at fool.com.au. Mention the podcast and they'll send you a link to join if you want to. Um, again, not supposed to be an ad, but given you asked the question, if you are out there thinking about how you can turn a portfolio into regular income, that's exactly what we do at Everlasting Income. We, we Specifically, the idea is that hopefully my mother-in-law will never have to sell a share to fund her income, uh, that we can use just the generated dividend income plus the franking credits to deliver a return, which is something like 4% cash um, dividends or income plus franking credits on top of that. So probably 5 5.5% in total. Now, you say you want 7.5%. I don't know your personal circumstance or your cash flow needs. What I would say is just be super cautious about reaching, overreaching, because there are some high-yielding stocks out there. Why only 4%? Why not 5 or 6 or 7 Surely we can invest in the banks. Well, maybe. As we've already said this episode, uh, ANZ's uh, profit was down 42%, and I don't know what'll happen to the share price. But suffice it to say, um, we want to make sure we're delivering quality income we want to make sure we have capital preservation. Hopefully, growth is our aim. We can't promise it, but hopefully, uh, capital preservation and growth over time to make sure we're keeping up with the higher cost of living over time uh, and delivering a quality income stream that members don't need to you know, worry about. They don't have to worry about sleeping at night because we're looking after them and, and helping them do that for themselves. So, mate, that's the answer. Um, hope that makes sense. I said, again, not supposed to be an ad necessarily, but um, it's, a, it's an issue, right? We know plenty of people listening to us are either at or in retirement or near retirement. Um, and if you're in that that space, you are thinking, man, how do I do this? How do I how do I get through this? Um, the everlasting income strategy is one we look for. So again, if, if you want to, I don't have a link for you because um, it wasn't supposed to be an ad, but go to membersupportau at fool.com.au. Send us an email there. Tell the wonderful member services fools that I sent you, or Doc and I sent you, um, and they can help you get uh, access to that particular service. So if it's, that's for you, that's great. If not, that's cool too. Um, again, no pressure, no dramas. And again, obviously, Michael, we can't give you personal advice, so I can't say what you should do. Uh, all I will say is we have a strategy that does exactly that, and that's what it's supposed to and that's doing that's what it's there for so hope that helps a little bit speaking of which we do also have access to doc's wonderful service now i got a, a message in the week doc will be in mailbag but suffice it to say i have to call eo incredible value okay it's not cheap it's incredible value but there's one problem Tell me. with incredible value yes it's not value investing we are doing. No, oh, just to clarify. So that's hard. Okay, so not not the, the service is going to be called incredible value, <laughs> but but I'm told by my correspondent, as you said last week, we can't call it cheap. We got to call it great value, incredible value. So this is what should I call it? extreme value? No, I can't call it extreme value. I can't call it. What do I call it? Incredible. What, is the, what is the growth? What is the growth value? What is the sorry? What's growth? Value? What is the growth term for really great value? Is that an oxymoron? It's an oxymoron. But uh, let, let's stick with the incredible value, just let's to make that. make our you know, whoever wrote that in <laughs> happy. In the meantime. To, to save us having to discuss this one, just go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast for some incredible growth and incredible value at the same time. Charlie Munger did say growth and value is joined at the hip. Maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he meant buying a growth service at a value price. Maybe that's the epitome of great investing, do you reckon? I agree. <laughs> All right, we're done. Um, you can get us on the uh, Twitters though, at, at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. If you want your question featured, or you simply have a comment or a question you want us to answer, um, jump into that in Twitter. If you're on Facebook, go to Scott Phillips Money or The Motley Fool Australia. And if you're on Instagram, again, at TMF Scott P or at The Motley Fool AU. And with that, we're done, mate. But before we go, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a nice five-star rating. If you wouldn't mind, leave us a kind review. Say wonderful things about us, as they say. If you like us, tell the world. If you don't, 
tell us. And don't forget, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back, yes, on Sunday with a special mailbag edition. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.